Welcome to the Meaningful Work Matters podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Soren, founder of Eudaimonic by Design. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of meaningful work, explore its complexities, and examine its impact on people and the organizations they're a part of. Each episode features insightful conversations with cutting-edge experts who are successfully navigating the challenges of meaningful work. We hope to offer you ideas, frameworks, and tools to unlock potential and design work that's fulfilling, impactful, and supports everyone's well-being. Subscribe or follow us now, and let's make meaningful work matter. In this episode, you're going to meet Donna Gaffney, a seasoned psychotherapist, an advanced practice psychiatric mental health clinical nurse specialist, and an educator. She spent her 30-year-plus career addressing stress and trauma, working with families, schools, and communities following 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and most recently the COVID-19 pandemic. She holds graduate degrees from Columbia and Rutgers University and the University of Pennsylvania. And in 2021, she received the American Psychiatric Nursing Award for Excellence in Practice. In the episode, we're going to be talking a bit about the double-edged sword of meaning, all the ways that meaning can really be great, but also can actually erode our well-being if we're not careful. Donna, it's so good to be able to have you uh, talking about this incredible, this incredible new book that you have just published. If it's possible for you just to tell us a little bit about what this book is and, and why you chose to write it. Uh, the book really came from my work, my, my career long work with um, healthcare professionals, uh, social workers, physicians, medical students, nursing students, nurses, about the kinds of things that they needed to have to um, make sure that they could practice the way they wanted to practice. And of course, we've I've, I've dealt with forensic nurses, NICU nurses, ICU nurses, nurses who work during disasters. I myself have been involved at post 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, um, Sandy Hook, and of course, the pandemic. So I know what it means to be engaged in one of those very, very difficult circumstances. But here we are in the pandemic, and there is nothing that can prepare us for this not the HIV AIDS or the SARS epidemics, nothing prepared us for this. The, it was the unknown, the um, what was going to happen, was I safe? This invisible, invisible agent that's going to take over our lives. So I immediately started to, to volunteer for the Emotional PPE Project um, and worked with um, Rutgers University. They said, could you do a webinar on you know for our nurses? So it turned out to be seven webinars, everything from self-compassion and um, moral distress, uh, how to deal with family issues. And as I began to collect all this information, I kept thinking, I, I'm using every single tool that I've ever used in my practice. And they keep asking more questions. They keep saying, I want more, I want more. So I thought, maybe it has to be in one place, a book or you know something, a website. The power of story has always sort of had a real grip on me that I'm a psychotherapist. I, I listen to people's stories all day long. Um, when I talk to nurses, whether it's, it's therapy or counseling or webinar, it's all about the stories. So I said, we have to have nurses in here. So we, I talked to everyone that I knew. I said, you know, why don't, I would love to talk to you, did an interview. 
And then I said to myself, this is not my story to tell. This is their story to tell. So I said, we'd like you to be a part of this book. We want you to tell your story and how you dealt with this pandemic. What did you do? This is not doom and gloom trauma. This is about how they just embraced what hmm. their skills, their talents, their assets, and then move forward. So when we first asked them, they didn't, they wanted to be anonymous. By the time we went to press, I, I want my name. I want my name under my story. So it was just fabulous. Um, uh-huh. and, and those are the, um, those are the stories that really, um, have just meant so much to me as a human being and as a professional. But what I, you know, I began to look at Carol's work and trying to think, you know, we can't just do this trauma approach. We can't, it's not about that. How did these nurses not only survive, but thrive? And I saw the elements in their conversations of the six dimensions of well-being. I said, they, they figured it out. And because they actually came to me and said, yes, I will tell my story. They were all ready to, to tell that story and to, and to, you know, as Louise DeSalvo uh, says about reflective writing, they wanted to go public. They were ready to go public. Some of my favorite chapters are on activism and advocacy, mm-hmm. um, about on the arts. And then I have a whole chapter on, you know, where do you go when you want to go further? How do you find mm-hmm. a therapist? How do you? really embrace this change in your lifestyle. And so the the stories then just fell into place in each one of the chapters, every single one of them representing the dimensions of well-being. It sounds so incredibly meaningful to just go through the process, but it, it strikes me as I listen to you talk, there is a, a piece of research that we uncovered around, um, around narrative identity and its connection to meaning. There's a sociologist whose name is Margaret Summers who talks about this process called implotment. And um, and as she explains it, and I'll use her words, all of us come to be who we are, however ephemeral, multiple, and changing, by being located or locating ourselves, usually unconsciously, in social narratives, rarely of our own making. And I feel like there's so much of what your book is and really what you're describing about these nurses, these, these nurses and their realities. That's, it's about implotment. I'm curious what, what that makes you think. The act of storytelling actually comes to shape the yeah. way that we construct meaning and purpose in our careers. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that the narrative is so important. Um, and that's why you know, in interviews and then working with them as they told their story, um, was, was crucial. The work that I'm doing now with the New Jersey, um, Emotional Wellbeing Institute, we have sessions every two weeks where we have two panelists talk about their stories. And then we invite maybe a hundred people to come and listen to those stories. And one of the things we do in the preparation, we, we ask them to come and we have a session before and they tell us their story. And then I sort of go to work and say, all right, I want you to talk about this story with detail. You are painting a picture. You want other people to be in your shoes and see what you see. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has all kinds of emotions in there that people have names. 
um, don't use pronouns. Tell tell us their names, and and how you what you got from that. Your emotions from that, positive, negative, whatever they are, and how that resolved for you. What was the end point? And I think that the more we do that, whether and and of course in the beginning of the pandemic it was all about story. It was about social media and the stories that you were telling on social media and how people responded and reacted. Nurses had never been that verbal before. We were we were with them. We were witnessing everything that they were witnessing, and that's the essence of that narrative. And then to be able to go back and say um, how this changed me. Uh, what does this narrative mean when people say to me, "Oh, I don't know how you do the work that you do." I hear that a lot. Whether it's working with bereaved families or working with nurses in crisis, I always go back to those. The two stories that I had as a very young nurse and, you know, working in a PEDS ICU in New York City and witnessing the devastation and the grief of parents who are, you know, either dealing with a very sick child or have lost a child. It was that moment that I said, I, I, um, okay, I know how to do those tasks, the IVs, the meds and all that. But this is where I belong. I belong talking and listening to these individuals. I, and then I knew that I had to, you know, take a detour and uh, went to get a master's in, um, got my master's in child development and then another master's in in actually, you know, psych mental health nursing, where I learned how to do therapy 20 hours a week for two years and then ultimately a doctorate. So I, but I, I had found, I, I sort of went, sort of in a couple of different places trying to figure out where do I belong. And um and I've had a couple of nurses tell me that they they um they, you know they like they like being a part of somebody else's life and someone else's story. But nurses do this all the time. Healthcare professionals do it all the time. We are with individuals at their most vulnerable. And we will change, we will change those lives. Um, in working with some non-nursing professionals, uh, social workers, med students, um, sometimes they're almost apologetic about, well, you know, I'm not advancing like I should be, or I'm not in an administrative role, I don't have this. I said, but, but look at what you're doing. And they're making an incredible difference in these individuals' lives. It's not always about how you can advance it's really about what you're giving in that moment and how that affects you in your life. One of the reasons why I was so excited to be able to talk to you uh, after hearing you talk about this work and hearing you talk about the the book and reading the book is because I, I really can't think of a profession where meaning and purpose is more prevalent, just as you've described, than within nursing and where this whole idea of um, the double-edged quality of meaning comes in. So as as you know, and as we've talked about, that the research suggests that there's a lot of good that meaning can do within our lives, within our careers, within the organizations that we're a part of. But there's also some very um, there's some very perilous aspects of of deeply meaningful work in the way that it can impact our well-being, our health. Um, our families, and so many others. So I'm curious how you seeing this double-edged sword of meaning play out, uh, especially over the last few years for nurses. You know, it's a, a lot of it is about boundaries, and you know, there's a, a lot of conversation about um, compassion fatigue, 
And um, some of the work that's been done on compassion fatigue suggests that that's not actually the right way to talk about it. It's really empathic distress um, because compassion actually makes us feel better about the work that we're doing. Empathic distress is where those boundaries begin to get very fuzzy between me and my patient. Do I see my patient? Do I see myself in that patient, my family in that patient? And stepping, how I, stepping into my patient's shoes as absolutely, opposed to cognitively absolutely. thinking about the role. Right. Exactly. And it becomes very, that is very perilous uh, because if you can't separate yourself from that individual, you're not serving yourself and you're not serving the, the patient at all. Nurses, all healthcare professionals give and give and give. And you can get into a lot of trouble with that. You have to set those boundaries. Healthcare professionals always, you know, somebody asks me to do something, I'm going to do it because it's for the greater good. But it's not always for the greater good. I've had nurses tell me that they don't answer their pager maybe because they know they're going to be called to work another shift and they can't, they just can't do it. Giving permission to either say no, set boundaries is so important. And I, um, in addition to talking about the dimensions of well-being and self-awareness and, you know, being kind to yourself, I use Kristen Neff's work and her new book called Fierce um, Self-Compassion just nails it. Um, mm. She, you know, you need to protect yourself, set those boundaries, don't say yes all the time, don't be guilted into doing something be clear that this is what you need to do. And she talks about the yin and yang of nurturing self-compassion and fierce self-compassion. And so I encourage, I encourage my patients, my, the nurses that I work with, be fierce. It is okay. There's so much about the research that talks of the moral <laughs> stake of deeply meaningful work. When, when the work is deeply important, when there is that sense of Literally, people will live or die based on the effort that you have. When, when there is that kind of moral stake to the work, it becomes so hard to manage those boundaries. Um, and it, it goes, it really, I mean, the, the idea of talking about work-life balance almost becomes an absurd way of framing something because the idea of balance is just literally impossible when the stakes are so high in those situations. And, and that, that erosion of boundaries really has the potential to lead to a kind of obsession that um, that makes it so hard to step away at a personal level, but even more so uh, in terms of our well-being, it really erodes the relationships that we have. It makes it hard to get the social support you need from friends, from your spouse, from the relationships that you have with your children. All of those things become so different, I, I, so difficult. I'm, I'm curious in terms of the conversations, the stories, the practices that you heard about, what were some of the strategies that nurses had, especially during the pandemic, to, to manage those boundaries with their families in ways that allowed them to continue to find the social support? when they needed it. They actually, and, and they talked about this quite, quite openly, that their colleagues at work became their families and their families at home became their secondary families. And um, I, I was asking an ER nurse from uh, New York City his thoughts about that. And he said, you know, 
I have a roommate and he is not an essential professional like I am. He worked in the emergency room. And my, my, my roommate sits at home in front of his laptop, you know, talking to his colleagues, but I have the gift of going to work every day and I am with my colleagues. And that is such an interesting and important way of looking at it. But he recognized the collective healing that would go on with him, with, between himself and his colleagues. And, and that's what we heard over and over again. Sometimes they said, you know, we need to get out more. So they would take their half hour lunchtime and they would go into a um, Pilates class outside in the parking lot and bring everyone there. But the, those meaningful, those meaningful episodes, moments made such a difference, whether it was on the, on the unit where they were working with their colleagues at home. Um, but I do think that, that the nurses and, and all health professionals supported each other because there was no place else to go. Did you see any or hear of any um, really extraordinary special ways in which organizations found ways of supporting nurses during that period of time to buffer against the burnout, to bolster the well-being um, at the organizational level? Yeah, I did. Um, I There was a hospital, a fairly large hospital in New York City that rotated the nurses every two weeks. They would not stay on the same unit for more than two weeks, knowing full well that the impact of those kinds of patients would be especially difficult. They would also have sessions. They would pull people together and have, have them talk about their experiences. Um, and the work I'm, I'm doing with New Jersey New right now is setting up virtual Schwartz rounds. The Schwartz Center is based in Boston and it's all about compassion and healthcare. And we have these sessions and I want to tell you, 200 nurses signed up wow. every single week. And we did, we did things that, and, and my colleagues at NJ New really organized this with the uh, Schwartz um, Center is that they gave, they gave contact hours. They gave educational contact hours. You come for an hour, you listen to someone else's story, you talk about your story, and you're going to get a contact hour for this. And there's no chart. You, it doesn't get any better than that. It's, you know, sharing those moments, being a part of someone else's life. And then this comments that they um, would say to each other were so incredible. Like, or this happened to me and I, I, I'm going to take my cues from how you handled this. So there's tremendous collective, um, resilience in this, in this group that would come and they keep coming. You know, here we are three years out. There's still a hundred people that sign up for every single session. They're just, um, they want as much as they can get. There's a wonderful paradox that I think exists within the book uh, that you describe, and specifically within the industry. I mean, you talk at one side about just the moral distress and the actual and perceived powerlessness in clinical settings that nurses experience. It's just part and parcel of what the profession of nursing is. And you also say, um, and I quote, taking action in one's profession or community is a potential antidote to vicarious trauma. So I'm very curious to hear you talk a little bit about the way that you saw nurses truly find empowerment through advocacy and activism. We often hear, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to do any of this. But the people that do find the time actually bring in other individuals because the time it's a different kind of experience. 
in, in the field of childhood bereavement, there are a number of uh, healthcare professionals, social workers, mental health clinicians who are very engaged in, you know, working with families who've had a loss. They are also among the most proactive advocates, activists I have ever seen. They are constantly starting, you know, here, November is childhood bereavement month. What are you doing about this? Getting the word out. There is a sense of accomplishment that you are doing something that's different from um, the work that you have. You know, no one's paying you to do this. You're doing this because you believe it's the right thing to do. You know, there's a physical change, and it also brings about a collective sense of healing, uh, camaraderie. Um, and so we, we saw a lot of very clever ideas. The nurses who started the, the you know, lunchtime Pilates group, um, they actually said, you know, this is going to feel good for me, and I think it can feel good for you as well. So they tried all of these different things. We had tons of nurses doing these kinds of things. One of... um one of the nurse storytellers in the book uh, talks about food being her love language and that she, um, her family is from Asia. And so she wanted so badly to, you know, they used to have these family dinners where they would, you know, have their, their, the foods of their, you know, home country. And she said, so I decided to do it at work. So she created this opportunity for people to have these dinners at work where they would bring in dishes from, their communities, their um, their families. So the so the nurses that I have seen who really take that next step and say, I, I I'm going to really do something about this. I think I can change policy, and that's what nurses are so good at doing: changing policy because they've been in the trenches. They know what what how essential it is, and they 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 maybe for take the foray into politics or. Just a simple, you know, vote ER, which is ER nurses wearing a lanyard that says vote ER that you, you approach people about, you know, making sure they're registered to vote and being active in organizations that really, um, espouse the same kinds of beliefs and values that you have. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, when you feel that, when you're a part of that, it really elevates you. It really allows you to say, I can make a difference. I'm not only making a difference in my patient's life, I'm making a difference in all of patients' lives. It's really interesting to hear you speak about that. I mean, there's so much of uh, there's so much of what you are describing that is so core to this idea of eudaimonic well-being. And you've of course talked about Carol Riff's model, which is really a model of eudaimonic well-being. And eudaimonia, this ancient Aristotelian Greek word that that was about what a life well lived could be. And I think very often eudaimonia is simplified into a life of purpose, uh, juxtaposed to other kinds of well-being, like hedonic well-being, which is all about a life of pleasure or an absence of pain. Eudaimonia seems to include the fact that life can actually be quite filled with suffering. And that that is a part of what life is all about. And rather than just being about a pursuit of purpose, I really think the eudaimonia, at least in the way that Aristotle thought about it, was about a pursuit of ethics, a pursuit of of doing the right thing. And that in many ways, if you wanted well-being, it required well-doing. And I think that there's something really powerful in the way that you're describing all of these nurses finding ways, even, you know, at the end of their wits, 
of continuing to to find ways of of continuing to to, to practice well doing um, for not just themselves, but for ultimately the communities that they're a part of. Yeah, I, I love that well doing. My practice is centered on a number of traumatic issues that that families, that individuals, nurses, professionals deal with. And and when someone says, Well, well, how how do you how do you deal with this? And you know, I think balance is a key. But the question I ask myself, which I believe fits in with what we've been talking about, is what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to learn? What is the meaning of this event in my life, in my patient's life? What can I take away? How can it inform my going forward and learning and growing? And I've seen that in um, so, so many of my patients. I've been, uh, you know, in practice for a long time. And it's always, and, and this is something that the, that the nurses talk about all the time. After you see somebody for this short window of time, whether it's in the ICU or the emergency room, oftentimes nurses don't know what happened to these patients. That is an incredible burden to carry. We need to know how how they're doing and and i've had a number of my clients say i was afraid to ask i was afraid because of HIPAA rules and i was afraid but when they do find out it's like this sigh of relief that what this nurse did made a difference in someone's life we need to hear we need to hear how how we have in, in fact changed someone's life uh, for the better we need to let people know when things go go well, and and that's something that I talk about all the time um, when I'm facilitating groups or talking with my my uh, clients who are in healthcare. Advocacy, activism, doing good, well doing, all contributes to our sense of well being. That we are doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing, and when it doesn't work anymore, when we're struggling with that, time to step back and say. What's going on with me? And I am having a hard time with this. I learned that lesson loud and clear when I was in graduate school, you know, working with um, with uh, a, a vet who was bereaved. And um, as I sat in a session and we recorded the session, I went to supervision afterwards. And, you know, I dutifully wrote down all my notes, listened to them again um, uh, in, this, in the recording, get to supervision. and. I start to read my transcripts and all of a sudden the words don't come out. Literally can't get the words out. So my professor at that time, my supervisor said, hmm, I think somebody has some grief work to do. And I thought, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> so, um, you know, as a young graduate student, just struggling with that. And, and that awareness is something that I think, um, every single one of us need to really embrace. Um, when we have a hard time with something, when it doesn't go well, when we're really angry at someone because they're not doing what we said, what's going on with us? How do we then um, take our reaction and sort of turn it inside out and then ask the question, what's going on with me that I cannot, um, that I'm struggling and I'm having such a hard time? Hmm. What beautiful guidance. Beautiful anchoring and self awareness to be able to uh, to be able to 
wrap ourselves uh, in this conversation with. I'm curious if there is one last piece of guidance that you would give to folks who are finding themselves in a situation where meaningful work is feeling like, oof, this is this is too much. This is uh, this is more than I can potentially grapple with. And what guidance would you give them? I'd say that they're human beings, and this is exactly what happens. Um, and that we are not uh, superstars, and we are clearly not heroes. I've had a lot of nurses say, "Do not use that word." Uh, because they feel that it distances them from other individuals. You're on a pedestal carved out of marble. Nothing can affect you when in fact everything affects you. Um, so don't call me, don't call me a hero. Call me a concerned professional. Um, I want to interact with you. Um, and so for my recommendation, when I hear someone say, I can't do this work anymore. Okay. Let's take a breath. Let's just step back. It is okay for you to feel that way. Let's look at what you have been through. And then how can we make adjustments in your life so that you are not, everything is not being sucked out of you? And that would be boundaries and balance and finding something that gives you joy and finding something that gives you joy at work every single day. Um, gratitude. Um, all of those things that are well, well researched in terms of, you know, being able to give us what we need in the work that we do. Hmm. For um, that and so many other extraordinary practices and rituals and habits, I encourage anybody listening to this to please get a copy of Donna's book and, of course, her co-author, Nicole Foster, Courageous Well-Being for Nurses, Strategies for Renewal. It is a beautiful chock full of wisdom guide, uh, storytelling, and um, an extraordinary resources for, um, for, I don't think just nurses, but for so many people who are doing, who are doing such hard and good work, such hard and good well-doing in their lives. Um, this book is, uh, is an extraordinary gift. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Meaningful Work Matters. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if this episode resonated with you, please take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better and reach more listeners. You can connect with me, Andrew Soren, on LinkedIn or visit www.eubd.ca to learn more about Eudaimonic by Design. Finally, if what you heard today spoke to you, tell your colleagues and people in your community about our podcast. We really appreciate your support in making meaningful work matter. See you next time.